So what we worked on last time was the the basic understanding was in order for us to properly, properly develop the skill set required for investigation into and learning of Gemara, we need to have a, a strategy. You know, there's a famous book written by a tennis coach called um, I think it's called The Art of Tennis. The Inner Game of Tennis. The Inner Game of Tennis. Oh, look at that. The Inner Game of Tennis. Like that used to be my Bible. You oh, The Inner Game of Tennis. Oh. Galway, Tim Galway, Tim Galway, Galloway, Galloway, and Tim, Tim was a was a coach, and he realized that there's a problem with coaching because when you coach a person how to do something, you may fall into the trap of teaching them how to do things, and as a result, they'll 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 lose out on the overarching thing that we're trying to do, the overarching strategy. So if I'm not mistaken, and I think Zach will correct me in terms of this, that when you want to teach a person tennis, instead of saying, okay, what you want to do is you want to hold your racket, make sure you grip it firmly like a non-yeshivish handshake, and then you should you should make sure that your elbow is at this degree. Instead, you said, okay, I want to tell you what tennis is all about. It's all about bounce, hit, bounce, hit, bounce, hit. So then Jeremy goes over to the guy and he says, okay, so we want to know how to play tennis. He goes, great. He says, say after me. Okay. Goes, bounce, bounce, hit, hit. Goes, bounce, hit, bounce, hit. And then as he's going, bounce, hit, bounce, hit, bounce, hit, he takes the ball and he throws it down and it bounces. And he goes, hit. And then he lets the person move into the stroke. Now, the person may miss the stroke. So instead of him working from a position of telling him what to do, he says, okay, what do you, what do you think was wrong with that stroke? Maybe, I hope I'm getting this relatively close to right. What do you think is wrong with that stroke? Until the person learns a sense of how they are operating, becomes intuitively aware of themselves, and develops a strategy of approach to how they do it. So now what we have to think about is, when we start learning Gemara, what's the bounce hit? What's the bounce hit? What are you trying to do? Mm. What's, the, what's the, the cloud, the ultimate principle of what's going on there? So I'm going to present with you a pretty structured system, but let's not forget the bounce hit of it all. The bounce hit is what the Gemara is, as we we kind of gave a more detailed description last year. The Gemara is a method of, has many purposes. One of the purposes, which is going to be highly important for us to know, is that it's a method, it's a module of cognitive education. It's a way of teaching you how to think. Now, of course, the t- the t- there's many other dimensions, there's spiritual dimensions, and there's halachic dimensions. But when we speak about how to do it, we have to be aware of what it's trying to do. So what's the Gemara trying to do? It's trying to teach you how to formulate a well-structured thought process in order that you can analyze, that you can synthesize, that you can extrapolate, that you can compare, that you can contrast, that you can hypothesize, that you can deduce, that you can infer all of those cognitive skills and it's teaching you how to do it. Now how is it teaching how to do it and what should your approach be, Don Bird? The way it's doing it is it's, what's the bounce hit of Gemara? The bounce to Gemara is when you make the ultimate call, read, think, read, think, read, think. Now because it's read, think and not read, 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 
which is your average textbook is read, 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 read. There's no need to, to think because the words are written explicitly in the language which is suited to your understanding. The punctuation is clear. The chapters are headed. Everything is in the right place, at the right time, in the right way, for the right person, in order that you can read, 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 and all goes in there. But it doesn't help you to think. But if you tell me something which is cryptic and ambiguous, and could be read in a number of different ways, I read, think. One second. Let me let me let me read it again. Maybe it means think. But one second, if it means this and it means that, all of a sudden, the kind of thinking I need to do, I have to hypothesize. Okay, so if it means this, so then this and this and this will have to be true. Let me check that out. Mm, it doesn't work out that way. So one second, let me try it. If it means this, then read, think, read, think, read, think. If you don't get this, so you start learning Gemara, it's so frustrating. You think, oh my gosh, they could have said that so simply. Why didn't they just say it? Answer, because then you wouldn't have had to think. And what we're trying to do, we're trying to get you to think. So that's why it says, Cheskes Abatim. Come along with Gemara and says, Hulche Usha. Now, according to most people, Hulche Usha is absolutely irrelevant, speaking halakhically. They were entertainment of thought. So a person goes and he thinks it's about presenting information. Why did we even bring in this goring ox? It's so irrelevant. It's rejected. But if the point is to allow you to explore the different dimensions by saying, there's this thing called Cheskes Gimoshanim. What do you think about it? Where does the three come from? Where do the years come from? What is it? Where's the shift? Wow, that's a great point. Well, it could be like this. It could be like this. It could be like this. I'm starting to think. I'm starting to get depth. I'm starting to get understanding. Do you know what? Things aren't simple. When things are simple, they shut up. When things are deep, they're complex. You have to think it from this side, and we're on this side, and this side. And Rabbi Shmuel, Rabbi Akiva, and the Rabbanan. And one second, that's all according to Rashi. But according to the Rashba, it's Rabbi Shmuel, Rabbi Akiva, the Rabbanan. According to Rashi, is extra chachamim. But that's all according to Rashi. But according to the Rabbi Negershim, <laughs> there's Rabbi Shmuel and Rabbi Akiva. There's a different world. And that's just in the Rishonim. And then you get to the Akhrenim. It's no there's the Reb Nachman and then there's the Neishua and until until do you know what happens you start to sharpen 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 hone in hone in and start to all of a sudden you get into life and you think one second let's think about history let's think about as I mentioned before how tiny little miserable sodden island off the coast of Europe managed to control most of the world or not most of the world but the biggest empire ever a quarter of the world's population 400 million Indians and less than 100,000 Brits controlling them. Now, if you ask me, that's absurd. That's strange. How did that work? How did it work? I don't understand it. How the hell did they get that empire? And what are the consequences in terms of the lingua franca of the modern world being English? But where, what, who was it? What happened? Where, where did it begin? How did it work? Why am I asking that question? Well, because I know you're Gomorrah. So I say, Minani Mini, where do these words come from? Just like I say, Minani Chesus Gimel Shanim, Shehi, Minani Chadok, Shehi Gimel Shanim. Same idea. Present with the information, I think about it. And I think to myself, this is really strange. This is mad. The fact that ISIS produced a video declaring war on Russia, 
that looks to me like not a wise move prior to beheading one of the person accused of being a Russian spy that you know, I don't know I don't, I don't know about I get the feeling that Russians are quite harsh <laughs> so I mean I don't know what that's all about so the whole the whole that, that, that whole thing is I think about it why do I think about it because I now do think why do I now do think because I learn Gemara why do I learn Gemara because it teaches me how to think it all goes together not that that's the only reason I Gemara that's the only thing it does but when you're talking about the technique could be you can play sports for many different reasons but when you talk about the technique so you have to know what the technique is so we speak about the technique of learning and you think that learning is not teaching you how to think oh my gosh so then your frustration just goes higher and higher because you say why did they say that in the world why did they bring so many different opinions why is it just simple and straightforward answer because we're not talking about reading comprehension we're talking about learning how to think how do you think? What do you need to do in order to think? As a result of that, let's become aware and understand how the Gemara works and is in fact a portrait of a thought process. And that's why just as a thought process has three stages to it, every thought process is comprised of an input stage, a processing stage and an output stage. And that you can't really have a thought which doesn't have these three components to it. Um, and we do this the whole time. Now, the reason why I'm going to even discuss this with you is because, again, Gomorrah is teaching how to think. But it's also teaching you something else. It's teaching what's called metacognition, how to think about the way you think. Now, the only way you can learn to think about the way you think is if you can make that thought process transparent. And the way to make the thought process transparent is to be able to find words which can describe it and develop a vocabulary that can speak about the different sides and the different angles and the different stages of the development of a thought process. If I say to you, how many parts are there to the average thought process? And you look at me and you go, oh, that's not going to be helpful. You can't be metacognitive. If I say to you, okay, let me ask you a question. There's three parts of the thought process. When you were thinking that thought, which of those parts of the process do you feel was the most difficult to deal with or do you feel you could have made an error with? So the average thought contains these three processes, three <coughs> stages, phases, called input, processing, and output. What is the input? Input is the information that goes into your head. So, for example, we're doing this on a rapid basis the whole time. I look at the shelf and I see there are two clementinas. Right? Input. I see two clementinas on a shelf in a bookshelf. It's a bookshelf. It's not a grocery store. It's a bookshelf. And I see two random clementinas. So that, that's, that's input. Input doesn't have an opinion. Input just is gone as information. Put it in there. Put it in there. Two clementinas on a bookshelf. End of story. End of story. You follow me? That's all. I see it. Where, where does the input come from? In this case, visual. You can have audio input. You can have sensory input. You can have taste input. Different kinds of input. Smell input. This time it's visual input. So I've got that. So I've got that. So I see two very delicious looking clementinas on a bookshelf. End of story. Input stage finished. Now, I can stop there. But then again, that's not thinking. That's stopping the thought process short. I can go into processing. Processing generally expresses itself through the forms of questioning. Let's use the most basic question. Why? Why do you think it's a bookshelf? If there would be books and it's a bookshelf, understandable. Clementine is not. So I have to start thinking. So my first step, step is to spot 
a seeming logical inconsistency. These things don't belong there. Now I have to start to hypothesize. Hypothesize. Hypothesize would be um, these fruits were stored there by a member of the program to eat at a later stage. Possibly. As opposed to that someone can read the inner segments of a Clementina and that's why they put it on the bookshelf. That could be another hypothetical thought. But of those two hypothetical thoughts, and I'm differentiating, of those two hypothetical thoughts, I would go with the storage for some teeth as opposed to there's a person that's Clementina literary and you can read them and that's why on the bookshelf because they belong with the rest of the books. I'll dismiss that as being an irrational thought and in differentiate between that and a more rational thought belongs so on. And then I may even go one step further and think since Daniel Malley is seated just below them, they probably belong to him. They probably belong to him. So that's called processing. So then I say to him the following thing, and now this becomes output. Daniel, do you want to move your Clementinas onto the table? <laughs> My Clementinas. All of a sudden, <coughs> you say what back to me? I say they're not mine. Boom. So now we have more input. This time the input is audio. And now I have to think, okay, so they're not here. So now I have to come up with more thinking, hypothesizing. Okay, so now they're amazing. Do you understand the point? Input, processing, output. Ben. Is there a danger in this process um, that it could lead to overthinking and in every process you do in life and specifically in Judaism and how much more so if you have a tendency to OCD which I don't think you have by any means you can always <laughs> do or don't you do not oh I do I think I do uh, okay so then you do <laughs> <laughs> in any process in, 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 Ju- and in Judaism especially or already in anything finicky um, there's always a danger of overdoing something. It's, just, it's a natural danger. And therefore there always has to be a, a balance set up, which is, don't be stupid, be normal. Don't be stupid, be normal. So this, yeah, you got, you got, those are the two, Rebbe Shah says those are the 614th and 15th commandments. So those are kind of things which everything else, everything like bases on. If you don't have those two like at your disposal, then you can get yourself into serious trouble. So, of course, of course, you can get into you know you can always you can always paralyze yourself through analysis, no question, no question. And especially for a person that's that's in the habit of overthinking things. So then imagine if you become aware of the way you're overthinking <laughs> the thinking that you're overthinking. So it can be like a really kind of a bottomless pit. So we're learning how to think, but shouldn't we also learn how to not to think? So so it could be one of the processes of 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 metacognition is when you see thoughts spinning out of control, you learn how to say, oh wow, look at that thought. It looks like a whirlwind going, watch it go. And off it goes into the distance. Okay. Yes, Ryan. <coughs> you'd read something, it's cryptic, that's the input. Then you would be like, okay, I'm going to process this. It doesn't make sense. I'll just read Rashi. Oh, you see, so there's your first fault. There's your first basic and fundamental fault. So now let's talk about this process as applied to Talmud. In applying it to Talmud, the three pillars of Talmudic understanding translate as structure popper. Now, structure popper is a word which is not Yiddish, nor Spanish, nor Italian. <laughs> structure popper is a completely and totally manufactured, made-up word. Um, and what structure popper does is it tells you which of these these three processes parallel the three processes, the three phases of the thought process. So you've got the first thing you may have to make sure, and I'll go to more detail in this, is structure. Then you have to go into, for processing, power questioning. And finally, you have to do what's called 
create a paradigm shift. Now these three pillars of textual understanding will assist you in the analysis of Mishnah, Gemara, Rashi, Tosis, Rishonim, Achronim. It's what you need to do. So structure which comes underneath input has really five stages to it. Okay? Five stages to it. And what we'll start off is we'll... Um, We'll explain those five stages. Let's say I would like, like to apply this process to, to learning a Mishnah. Would you like to do that? How do you take this thought, this, 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 this overlapping thought process and apply it to the study of a Mishnah? So you do it like this. Whenever you learn a Mishnah, there are five steps that you do first, five that you do second, and three that you do third. But in terms of questions, we'll call this the 353 Mishnah Analysis Technique, or 353 mat. Right? 353 mat, but before the three of the Mishnah, there's two pre previous steps. <coughs> before you start learning any Mishnah, the first thing you do, before you do anything, you open up the Mishnah, what should I do first? I'll tell you what you should do first. Read it. What volume, what pitch, what intonation? You should read it four times as loud as you can. Why? Well, because if you only say something that you're not convinced about, what you'll do is you'll mumble. But, if you are certain about something, you enunciate your words and you use a high volume. So now, try say something that you're not convinced about in a high volume. All of a sudden you're back up, whoa, 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 what are you doing here? You can't do that, you can't speak loud here, you don't understand what you're talking about. So the brain says, well, I'm going to make sure that I understand what I'm talking about. And all of a sudden, boom, a rush of information goes to your head and you're forced to make decisions about punctuation and meaning. But what happens is when you do that, so you read it through four times in an unhappy voice, you'll find that you'll read it through with conviction and then you'll, you'll take a double, oh, one second, no, that didn't sound right, let me try that again. And then read it through with a loud, happy voice and you oh, and after the fourth time, you've actually got a semblance of understanding, you've got some kind of background. Okay? And you, at this point in time, you are not attempting to translate. You're, not, you're using, the only kind of brain you're using at this point in time is your subconscious. You just, feeling the way through the Mishnah and it could be that your Hebrew knowledge is very limited and it will sound like garbled it doesn't make a difference this is the way you do it four times light-headed it's first begin to answer your question now. don't worry yes, Jim I'm trying to find the right polite way to ask this but I feel like I'm struggling on number one and if I'm not ready for all these others what? and maybe some other people are struggling on basic comprehension why are we learning the, the whole structure to build this, this advanced understanding when I can barely read the words, I guess, or maybe... Okay, so, so that, that's, that's a great question. In other words, this, the minute you can read the words, right. you learn the Mishnah. Now, you learn the Mishnah and you read the words. Um, and then you learn the Gomorrah. If your focus is purely translation, you will stagnate in your development of accessing what the Talmud has to offer. The Talmud trying to teach you to think. Now, they're trying to teach a 7-year-old how to think, and a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 56-year-old, and a 72-year-old genius who's been learning his whole life how to think. So, whether you're doing this because you can't understand the word, or even if you're doing this in English, all these stages of the process apply as 
as much as if you're doing it in after 15 years of learning. We're trying to figure out what is a Mishnah and how do you learn it. So you're saying to me, but I can't even translate it. My answer is, okay, that's until you've translated it. But once you've translated it, now it's translated. Now you can do this and you can do that. What's your problem? But I don't know how to translate it. You're right, you should learn Hebrew. But that's great, and you should learn Hebrew now, all fully. But you say to me, I want to learn Gomorrah. Fine, so I'm teaching how to learn Gomorrah. So you say, but I don't know Hebrew yet. So fine, you learn Hebrew, but I'm teaching how to learn Gomorrah. So if you want to learn Gomorrah, this is what you do. I don't know Hebrew, so I'll tell you what. Do you know what this Mishnah means? Yes, I know what this Mishnah means. How do you know you don't know Hebrew? Because I went through it word by word and I translated it. Okay, good. So now that you've done that, now you can do this and now you can do that. I don't know if you feel satisfied by that answer. I'm not sure I fully understand it, but I'll... So I'll tell you, we'll, we'll try to illustrate this with a practical example, and then maybe we'll make it slightly clearer. I hope. Before you've done anything else, read through and translate... Read through in a loud and happy voice. Oh, you're all with me there. There you agree with me. You agree yeah, with you me. you've got to be able to read, right? You've got to be able to read. But more than that, the next stage is R&T, which is read and translate. In other words, you haven't yet translated it. The first four times you read through, do not yet translate it. Because one of the biggest errors that by the children make is they translate sentences word by word word, not sentence by sentence if you translate things word by word you miss out the context you don't get the word as it feels in the the thing and you can if there's options of which word to choose you can choose the wrong word and it's not good and it's not glad and it doesn't work so therefore you have to translate sentence by sentence the way you translate sentence by sentence is you preempt your translation with a loud and happy reading four times and then you get a sentence you get a sense of all the words you do know and then you only translate the words you don't know as opposed to going through it word by word when you get all stuck up and muddled up in this word and then you can't figure it out and you lose your comprehension you use the sense and you use the flow and you don't see the forest from the trees okay so th- those are the two stages now let's assume you've got them so for me that's not even the beginning you say for you that's all you can do fine but you can do that so do that now you start to begin what are you doing? Now you're learning a Mishnah. Until then, you've translated. Yes, so if you want to translate, just pick up an article. Now we teach you how to learn and how to think, and that's what Tom was trying to do. Okay, so next thing you do, what do you do? You look at the Mishnah and you go, wow. Wow. Why'd you go, wow? Because there are three basic things that you need to know about Mishnah in order to make sure, Ryan, that your input is correct. How do you do that? You make sure that you have labeled the parts or ask yourself the question what are the parts? Reverend, what is step two up there? Read and translate, RNT uh-huh. How many parts are there? And why in this order? So in other words, like this. So now you've you've got a clear translation of the Mishnah, and you've now gone to labeling the parts, how many and why. And now this is quite simple. The next stage, and that's why, Jeremy, if all you did was the first two stages, and you stopped there, you'd be deeply deprived of any notion of what's going on. I give you my watch to fix. Assume it's broken. Okay. What's the first thing you do? I make sure I got the watch in my hand and take a look at it. What would you do to take a look at it? Well, grab it like this. Make sure I didn't drop it and see that it's moving. Assume it's not. It's not moving. Pretend it's not moving. Pretend it's not moving. Well, it's not moving. Well, I would say, okay, the watch is not moving. What normally makes a watch like this move? I flip it over and look and see that it uh, looks like it's powered by a lithium battery. Oh, it's got a nice sign on the back. It has, eh? Isn't it nice? 
um, and say, okay, I've got to try, if, if I'm the guy fixing it, the fastest way would be to find a watchmaker and say, hey, I'll give you a... Okay, so you're a watchmaker. Oh, I'm a watchmaker. The watch is and you're a watchmaker. So what you should you do? Um, I would try to find some way to open it to remove... And you go on those tools, boom, and you can pop up in the back. Oh, that'd be great. If I could do that and not bust the little rubber... No, it would be fine. Okay, so I'll do that, pull it out, figure out what battery I've got, because it doesn't say... Um, and you have to go shop and get that battery, plop it in, make sure I put it in the right side up. And the battery doesn't work. Oh, wasn't well. a battery problem. Well, then I should have checked the battery before I put it in to make sure that it actually generates the right, right voltage on top. That's right. Put it in there. Um, or perhaps if the battery's good, both the, I should have actually really tested the battery before I took it out. The range is good. Yeah. I'm really going to fire pretty soon. Uh, <laughs> although, you know what? This is a kinetic wash, so you know what that means if you shake it, it actually powers itself. That's right. So, oh. so if I was looking for a battery, that you would be stupid to me. So, 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 essentially, the, what you do is you go on all the information you can, but what's crucial if you want to actually repair the watch, right. is you have, you, have to, you have to know how the thing works. And knowing how the thing works, meaning you have to know about all the parts. Like, if you didn't know that the battery was a part of a watch, and that's a crucial part, mm-hmm. so, so you wouldn't even think to, to, to start examining it. Right. So in other words, you have to understand what's called the structure. What are the pieces and how do they interrelate? What are the parts and how do they function within the whole? Now, if you want to understand the Mishnah, you have to understand what are the parts, how many are they, and why are they? How do they function? So, for example, for example, Cheskes Abatim. Yes? It's a Mishnah. How many parts are there? Three. Three parts? What are the parts? Peris Tadir. All things that give you Peris Tadir. Sadelavan and Sadehila. Vague, 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 not Sadelavan. Seemingly, on a simple breakdown, there are three stages to the Mishnah. There's the, in regard to what is the, the, the laws in regard to something which is a constant fruit producing object, an itinerant fruit producer, not constant, right? You know, Oise Peristadio, part one. A not study part two, and the last one is a um, field which can produce numerous crops in the space of a single year. So you've got a three-year crop, constant production, a three-year crop, not constant production, and a field which can produce three crops within a year. And then there will be those are the three basic parts of mission. But of course, they can be then subdivided into more processes into more stages. Correct? So now, until you know, say you've learned this Mishnah and you haven't made that discrepancy to understand what those stages are, it means you haven't, you haven't, you don't know what the Mishnah is, you don't know how it's working. And it's going to be so crucial because there's, there's one stage to the Mishnah where it's actually, the, the link is an ambiguous link. And if you don't understand that, 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 the ambiguity of that link, so then everything falls to pieces in terms of understanding the Mishnah. Okay? So first of all, you have to go like this. But one second, it's not so simple. Because the mission is not just Peyer study, Ainoise Peyer study, Sade Ilan. Those aren't the three things. There's other stuff going on as well. So those labels are good, but they're way too generic. If you just understand the watch as being the mechanical stuff and the battery, it's not going to help you think fix it. You have to not only know the big parts, you have to be able to chunk them down until they're tiny little parts as well, Correct. So, for example, if you've got cheskas, habatim, vaboris, vashikin, vamoris, vamechertsois, ubeis abadim, ubeis ashlochim, vahavadim, vachol dovashoyis aperis tadir. Nine categories with one principle. Yes? 
So what is that? So it says Cheskes Abatim, the occupation of houses. You got all these things. Cheskos and Shalishanim, Loim Yoim Loim. So what you've got, you've got essentially nine situations, one principle, and a ruling in regard to all of them. So that in itself is, say, two parts. And then you've got Sadeh Beis Abal, new situation, new ruling. Rabbi Shmuel Oimer, a new ruling on Sadeh Beis Abal. Rabbi Akiva says, a new ruling on Sadeh Beis Abal. So now, the first part, which you call Paris Tadir, has got two subdivided parts, all the situations and the ruling. The second part has got situation ruling. And the third part is situation ruling. Right? So, do you understand how you're chunking it down? Then we have to chunk it down further. Good thing my watch is working. Uh, we've run out of time. So, so that's going to end part two of, uh, of our introduction to Talmud Shem. And then we'll have to go on the five and the three. And that's just for Mishnah. And then we're going to Gomorrah and then Rashi and the rest if you've got the time and patience. How much? Three. Oh, three. Yeah, what's that? Yeah, what's that? What are the parts? How many? Why in this order? Wow! What are the parts? Wow. How many? Why in this order? Wow!